0: Just visit the app store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to baysidechapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. I want to read to you something written by a prominent American pastor and see if you can find the error in it. Here's what he says. There are two ways the Bible says you can get to heaven. Plan A is to earn it. That's the performance plan. And to earn it, you only have to do this. Never sin and always do what's right the entire time that you live. Just be perfect. Since none of us qualify for plan A, God came up with plan B, which is this. You trust Jesus Christ when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anybody pick up on the error in it? Where in the Bible does it ever say that God has two plans for salvation? Nowhere. Because there's always, only always been one plan that God has had. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. Now, if there's any confusion about it, it's because uh, people are maybe mixed up on the purpose of the Old Testament law. Why God gave the law, And some have come to think that, well, you know, God must have thought that we could earn our salvation by keeping the law. And because nobody was able to actually do it, God had to come up with plan B, you know, Jesus, as if Jesus is plan B. And while it's true that every other religion in the world teaches some version of that earn your own way plan, now, virtually every religion in the world says something like, you've got to perform these rituals, you've got to behave this way, you've got to do these things in order to earn righteousness, in order to earn favor with God. While virtually every other religion in the world has always taught that, Christianity never has, has it? In the Christian faith, we say we're saved by faith in Christ alone. That's plan A. There never was a plan B. It's important to be clear about that. Because if you've been working plan B, thinking that you have to earn your way into heaven, when God only ever has a plan A, then you're not only wasting your time, but your soul is at risk. Those who emphasize keeping the law to earn salvation, or keeping the law as a matter of perfecting their standing before God, deserve to be eternally condemned, Paul says in the book of Galatians. He's very strong on this. Those who are saying you need Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that, well, they're just wrong and they stand condemned. They don't understand God's plan for salvation and they don't understand the purpose of the law of Moses. And that's what Paul is trying to get across to the young believers in the churches of Galatia. These churches that he planted on his first missionary journey in South Central Asia Minor, now modern day Turkey, He no no sooner left those churches and went on to do other things than false teachers came in behind him and said, well, you know, Paul was part, right? He said, trust in God, trust believe in Jesus. That's that's good. That's a good start. But what you really need to do is now that you've come to trust in Jesus, now you need to start behaving like a Jew. You need to adopt the Old Testament law. You need to get circumcised. You need to eat kosher. You need to uh, keep the Sabbath and all the Jewish festivals. And then you'll have... Uh, assurance of a proper standing before God. Now, Paul has been disputing this from the very beginning of the letter. And and he's been saying that uh, these legalists are just wrong. Uh, You know, they they keep pointing to the law of Moses, and he's saying that's not going to get you saved. It's not going to make you a better Christian. In the earlier part of chapter 3, As we saw last week, he made the case that, look, when did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was was it when you trusted in Jesus or was it when you started keeping the law of Moses? No, it was when you put your faith in Christ. That's That's the important thing. We're justified by faith, just as Abraham was justified by faith. And now that you're in Christ, don't go devoting yourself to keeping the law as if your salvation or your standing with God depended upon it. And it's at this point in the letter That Paul anticipates the objection of some who would say, well, you know, maybe Abraham was justified by faith, but then God gave the law, right? we are supposed to keep the law? And when God gave the law, the grounds for salvation must have changed or something. Have faith, yes, but now you've got to keep the law. And Paul responds to all this by giving an example from everyday life. He tells a story, if you will, based on everyday life experience, and the story is intended to show that the introduction of the law did not mark a change in God's plan. Those who think it did have a wrong understanding of law. It's not as if God had one plan and then he set it aside for another plan. It's not like, you know, he, he gave the law to Moses and that annulled the promise that he gave to Abraham. It's not like there was a plan A and that didn't work out, so else well, so we had to come up with a plan B. God has only ever had one program for our salvation. That's the point that Paul's trying to get across to us here. God has only ever had one program for our salvation. It's not like God gave up on what he promised Abraham and told us to obey the law instead, nor is it the case that he had to send Jesus because nobody could keep the law. It's always been about Jesus, which means God must have had some other purpose for the law. And that's part of what we're going to learn in this passage, namely, what part does the law of Moses play in God's program, God's plan for our salvation? When we understand that, we won't waste our time On a plan B when God only ever had a plan A. Now here in Galatians chapter 3 verses 15 through 25, Paul tells us a three-part story that's intended to demonstrate that God's program for our salvation has never changed. The first part of the story comes in verses 15 through 18, and the point he's making here is that salvation has always been rooted in the promise of God. Salvation has always been rooted in the promise of God. It's kind of like a man who writes the last will and testament. Once it's signed and sealed, that will is irrevocable. Nobody can change it. He says in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, like a will, for instance, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Once that covenant has been made, No one can annul it, and no one can add anything to it. No one can change the terms of the will. Now, when did God enter into such a covenant? Well, it's a good thing that, you know, before we got into Galatians, we did this series in Abraham. Remember that? Because we learned in the series that we did in Abraham that going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, God made promises to Abraham. And among those promises was the fact that he would give Abraham uh, offspring and those offspring would uh, would multiply and become a great nation. And through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was the promise of salvation. That through the, the descendants of Abraham, there would come one who would bless all the nations of the earth with salvation. And so the, the Galatians have... Uh, have believed in Jesus just as Abraham believed in that promise that God gave and God counted it to him as righteousness so we have uh, the Galatians have trusted in that promise now you know Abraham was made that promise in chapter 12 but then like 10 years went by and he was becoming an old man and still didn't have any children so he, he went and complained to God in Genesis 15 remember this and he said, Lord, I still don't have any kids. How's this, how's this going to all work out? How am I going to become a mighty nation? How am I going to have descendants that are going to bless the whole you know, world if you don't give me a child? And God said to Abraham, oh, Abraham, you're still going to have a son. And he reiterates all the promises that he made in, in chapter 12. He reiterates those promises in, in chapter 15. And then what does God do? He literally cuts a covenant. He, he sacrifices animals as a pledge of his promise. And God goes on record in this covenant relationship with Abraham to say, all those promises I made to you, I will fulfill. God signs and seals and delivers a covenant with Abraham in chapter 15. It is, it is an irrevocable one-way covenant that depends all on God. And God says, I'm going to do this. The covenant promise was made and no one could annul it nor no one could add to it. God promised by way of a binding covenant That through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And it says on that occasion that Abraham believed God. And God counted him righteous on the basis of his faith. Abraham was justified by faith. So going all the way back to Abraham, God made a binding promise that no one can annul, no one can add anything to it. And the most important part of that promise was the part that said, through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, Paul says about that part of God's irrevocable promise in verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, referring to all of Abraham's offspring, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. In other words, the promise all along was about Jesus. Abraham would be the father of many, the father of nations, in fact. And one of those nations, Israel, was the family through whom the Messiah would eventually come, the Christ. And that particular offspring of Abraham would be the one through whom salvation would come to all the world. Abraham believed that promise and was counted righteous before God. So also the Galatians believed in that same one who was promised, in Jesus and they too were saved by faith. They were counted righteous before God. We believe in that same promise when we repent of our sin and turn in faith to Christ as our savior. For God has promised that those who, who believe in Jesus shall be saved. By faith in that same promise, we are saved from the penalty of our sins and, and, and we're counted righteous before God. Abraham and Israel looked forward to the promise. And and we look back on the promise that has now been fulfilled, but it's always been the same promise. That's plan A. And Paul is driving toward a very important point here when he says in verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The promise came much, much later. God gave the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. Israel then went into captivity in Egypt for 400 or so years until the Exodus when God had Moses bring his people out and then they were in the wilderness forming up into a nation under God when God sent Moses up on Mount Sinai to receive the law, the Ten Commandments. But guess what? That did not annul the promise or add anything to the original promise that God made. The promise made by God to Abraham, that through his offspring, namely the Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, remained in effect. That remained the main thing. God never said, forget my covenant with Abraham, that salvation would come to all the earth through his offspring, the Christ. Now, I want you to keep the law instead and earn your salvation. The giving of the law could not annul the promised covenant of God or add anything to it. Let me illustrate it this way. My sister Cheryl passed away about a year ago. And in her will, she stipulated that a significant portion of her estate would go to three of her grandchildren. Now, those three grandchildren are young. They have not received those funds yet. They're being held in a trust for them. So when they reach a certain age or they begin their college education, they can have access to those funds uh, to, to pay for their college or, or when they get older, they'll have those funds to use in whatever manner they choose. Now, those kids don't have to do anything to receive that money, except to, to trust in what their grandmother has promised and to wait for that promise to be fulfilled. No one can change the will. You know, Cheryl was the only one who could change the will, and now that she's gone, that will is irrevocable. Nobody can change it. Nobody can add anything to it. But what if my brother, who is the trustee of those funds, were to decide that he was going to lay down the law on those three grandkids? When they hit, like, maybe 12 years old, he would say, okay, I'm the trustee of those funds, but you're not going to get them, even though your grandmother promised them to you. You're not going to get them unless you get straight-A report cards every marking period from this point forward. You, uh, you get a, a, a varsity letter in sports. You have to uh, learn how to drive, but you can never have a car accident. You must always be your parents and, and never disrespect them, and you must go to church every Sunday. If you violate any of those commandments, then you will not receive the promised inheritance. Well, if he tried to do that, the whole family would rise up and cry foul, right? You can't do that. That's not what Cheryl intended. That's not what her will stipulated. You've got to honor the the terms of her will, which are irrevocable. Nobody can annul it. No one can add anything to it. And that's what Paul is essentially saying about the promised covenant that God made to Abraham. God has made his promise To bring salvation to all the nations of the earth through the long awaited offspring of Abraham, the Christ. As far as the promise was concerned, all there was to do was to believe God and wait for the promise to be fulfilled. And and now it seems some want to change the rules and add to it to say, okay, trust God, but now you have to keep the law too, or you won't get what's promised. And Paul's saying, that's not fair. Nobody can change the, the, the terms of the promised covenant of God. He says in verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. If you're going to add law to the promise, now it's not a promise. Now it's all about law. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You can't change the rules of inheritance. God made a promise that was irrevocable. If you now say that to receive the inheritance, you have to also keep the law, that would mean the original promise was really of no effect. It would replace the promise with law. But God's covenant promise of Messiah was put into effect long before the law was given. So that the terms of that covenant cannot be annulled or have anything added to them. And it's at this point that somebody would do well to ask, why then the law? What's the point of the law then? And this is where the second part of Paul's story comes in. The story that's meant to show us that God has only ever had one program for our salvation. Salvation has always been rooted in God's promise. And the next part of the story is meant to show us that the law served as a guardian for salvation's heirs. The law served as a guardian for salvation's heirs. So, okay, this is a story about a guy who put in his irrevocable will that nobody can change or add anything to it. He put in his will a promise of an inheritance to certain heirs. The heirs are asked to believe in what was promised and to wait for the day the promise is fulfilled. But the heirs are also young and immature and they're impatient, waiting for the promise and and they're prone to act out in ways that are going to embarrass their benefactor. They're going to bring dishonor on the family, whether, whether it's a, a parent or a grandparent who made the promise to them. But suppose grandma is wise enough to anticipate all this. So she also makes provision for her heirs to have a guardian assigned to them to keep them in line and ensure that the family name is honored while they wait for the day when they will receive what's promised. Paul says that is the true function of the law. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, because you were prone to act up. Uh, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. God made a promise to Abraham and his descendants, and through those descendants made a promise to the whole world that salvation would come through one of Abraham's descendants. But God also knew that it would take some time for that promise to be fulfilled. He knew that given all that time, the heirs of the promise were likely to misbehave and act out and dishonor the reputation of the one who made the promise. So he gave the law to kind of keep a lid on the evil they might be inclined to get into until Messiah himself came. That means the law did not replace the promise, but was put in place to serve the promise. That, that, that would mean that the promise not only came prior to the law, but it was greater than the law because the law was put into place to serve the promise. Now, Paul goes into another uh, short sidebar argument meant to show that the promise is greater than the law when he says at the end of verse 19, and the law was put into place through angels and by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is One. What's he talking about here? Well, according to a tradition that you find repeated in the New Testament, mentioned in the New Testament, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God gave the Ten Commandments to angels who then gave the Ten Commandments to Moses who then brought the Ten Commandments to God's people. So there were two levels of intermediary between God and the people who finally received the commandments. Not so with the promise. With the promise, the promise was given directly by God To Abraham without any mediation. And in Paul's mind, that somehow makes the promise of greater consequence than the law. But now that 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 has happened, does that mean that the promise and the law work against each other? And Paul says no. Verse 21 says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. No way. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If it was possible for somebody to become righteous by keeping the law, well, then there would be two alternatives. There would be the promise and there would be the law. They would be in competition. But there is no such thing as a law that can give life because nobody can live that well. Nobody nobody can live that righteously before God as to earn their, their salvation. Righteousness is not achieved by keeping the law. So if the law and the promise aren't in competition, how do they work together to accomplish God's plan A? Well, remember, the problem was how to keep immature children from going off the rails behaving badly while they waited impatiently for the inheritance that was promised to them. For one thing, of course, the law exposes what sinners we are and how much we need the salvation that was promised in Christ, but there's more than that. It says in verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. It's like the, 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 the scripture, the, the law, uh, you know, kind of put us under protective custody, if you will, imprisoned us so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. More than just showing us how sinful we are and how much we need Jesus, the law became the guardian of God's children, keeping their bad behavior in check until they would finally grow up. Look what he says in verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. It's like we were under house arrest. It's like we were under under protective custody until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, this principle of a guardian is, is important here. It's the key to really understanding the whole passage. The word guardian in the original language is pedagogue. And you need to understand that a pedagogue in ancient times was usually a household slave in a wealthy family that was assigned a very particular task. So the pedagogue's job, he was basically assigned to a child around age six and did this job until the child turned about 16. And the pedagogue's job was basically to be a shadow, to, to walk a child from home to school and then walk the child from school back home. Anytime the child was out in public, the pedagogue was there to keep the kid in line. To make sure that the child didn't act up in such a way as to embarrass dad. So the pedagogue's job was kind of to hover and, and and to you know sort of stomp out bad behavior and keep the kid from from embarrassing his father. Now, Paul says, That was the function of the Old Testament law. From the founding of the Jewish nation until the Messiah himself came, for 1,500 years, Paul says, the law was there holding us captive, attempting to keep God's rowdy children in line until Christ came. In order that we may be justified not by keeping the law, that was never the intent of the law, but rather that we may be justified by faith in God's promise kept in the coming of Christ. I was talking with one of our Bayside moms last Sunday and she said, you know, I've been tracking the series in Galatians and and I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to be a legalist as a mom, but, you know, it feels to me like my kids still need rules. You know, that, 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 they, they need guidance. They need rules about things like how late they stay out or how much screen time they have or who they hang out with. I don't want to be a legalist, but, and I said, no, no, stay tuned because next week, this week, we'll be talking about the need of children to have a guardian. And, and I explained what the guardian was, you know, how, how in, in Roman times they would assign a slave to walk a child to school and then walk the child back home again to make sure they stayed out of trouble. And she said, I sure could use one of those. And I said, well, for the time being, you're it. That there's, a, there's a proper function while children are young. So they need somebody to keep them in line and to help them make judgments that they're not really capable of making for themselves yet. And that was the function of the law in the Old Testament. It was to, uh, to make sure that, that the children, the, the impatient children who were the heirs, would, would uh, not get too rowdy or, or get too much out of line in such a way that they would embarrass their Heavenly Father until the promise finally came. So it's important for us to understand that God has only ever had one program for our salvation, right? The salvation has always been rooted in God's promise. The law served as a guardian for salvation's heirs, But here's the final part of the story. Once you're you're saved, once you've received the inheritance, you no longer need your guardian. Paul says in verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under law, imprisoned until the faith, coming faith would be revealed. So the law served as a guardian, as a pedagogue, keeping the children from misbehaving too much until the coming faith would be revealed. And here's where Palm Sunday comes in. You say, wow, finally the guy's going to talk about Palm Sunday. But it talks about how the coming faith would be revealed, and that's what happened on Palm Sunday, right? On Palm Sunday, Jesus made sort of a public declaration of his identity, coming out as the, as the coming one, the, the king of Israel. He's basically saying to Israel, you know that promise that God made to Abraham 2,000 years ago? I'm it. I'm the one who fulfills that promise. And, and he did that by entering Jerusalem not on a war horse, as one might expect a a king to enter a city, but he came in fulfillment of the ancient prophecy that said, Israel, you'll know your king is coming to you when you see him riding on a humble donkey, on the the colt of a donkey. And so Jesus deliberately rides on the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem in order to to send the message that, look, uh, the coming one is here. I, I am that one. And how did they receive that? Well, not so well. It was in that city that week that the misbehavior of the children reached such an incredible climax that not even the law could keep a lid on it, and they crucified the promised one. But on the third day, God raised him to life again, conqueror of sin and death, offering forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life to all who put their faith and trust in him. And as that good news has spread, down through the ages and to every corner of this planet, all the nations of the earth have been blessed with the gift of salvation through the promised offspring of Abraham. It's a salvation made possible by the coming of the Christ in fulfillment of the promise made now 4,000 years ago. And so Paul wants us to see that the law has served its function in service to the covenant promise of God. He says in verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. Just as Abraham was justified when he believed God's promise about a savior who would come, we now are justified, made right with God, when we put our faith in the savior who has come, who was crucified and has been raised to life again. In Christ, we have received the inheritance that was promised to Abraham long ago. We have come into our majority like children who have reached the age at which they're determined to be mature enough to manage the funds that have been held for them in trust. We have died to the old sin nature. Christ now lives in us. His spirit empowers us to live lives that are pleasing to him. It's like when the child in Roman society reached a certain age and the father dismissed the guardian and said your services are no longer needed we no longer need you huddling over him telling him what to do the young man was now expected to be guided by the morals and the code of behavior that he internalized and and made his own he says in verse 25 but now that faith has come we are no longer under a guardian Now that we're in Christ, we're no longer under the law. Now that Christ lives in us, now that we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, now that we have his Spirit producing his righteous fruit in our lives, we don't need a guardian huddling over us, keeping us captive, holding us in check. I can't help but but shoot ahead a little bit in Galatians to give you a preview of what's coming. Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Why? Because he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. These things don't have to be regulated by law because this is the way the law wanted you to live all along. And now it's coming from the heart. It's being driven by the Spirit of God who lives in you. If you were in Christ, you no longer need to live as if you're under the law. The guardian has been relieved of his duties. The, the law belongs to a bygone era. One New Testament scholar compares the role of the law in history to, it's kind of like the difference between typewriters and modern day word processors. When you think about it. Uh, the old-fashioned typewriter has given way long ago to the sophisticated computers that now sit in our desks that we can use to do word processing. But here's the interesting thing. The idea of the typewriter kind of still lives on in the computer, uh, it, it's basically the same concept and even, even the keyboard is similar to the keyboard of that old to type on in high school typing class of the old typewriters that I used to type on. Computer for years, would I ever wanna go back to a typewriter? Not on your whiteout or making erasures. I don't have to wait for the bell to ring to tell me it's time to throw the carriage back so that it would advance to the next line. Some of you are shaking your heads like, others are like, what's he talking about? (laughs) I don't have to ever worry about getting ink on my fingers when I change the ribbons. I can't imagine ever going back to an old typewriter. It was from a bygone era. Well, the modern word processor fulfills and transcends everything a typewriter ever dreamed of being. So also our life in Christ. All the righteousness, the law tried to force into us now flows freely from us. From a life in Christ and life in the spirit to, to be in Christ is not a matter of living contrary to the law, but it's living in transcendence of the law. It's so much better than, than, than trying to keep the law. To say that a Christian must live under the law once you've come to Christ, well, that's, that's kind of like saying, hey, welcome to the computer age. Now let me teach you how to use whiteout and how to change a ribbon and how to, how to roll paper into the carriage. would be like, well, that's not necessary anymore. We don't need any of that as Scott McKnight puts it, when the computer age arrive, we put away our manual typewriters because they belong to a former era. And Paul's critique of the Judaizers is that they're typing on manual typewriters after computers are on the desk. He calls them to put the manual typewriters away. But in putting them away, we do not destroy them. We fulfill them by typing on the computers. Every maneuver on a computer is the final hope of the manual typewriter. Now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law, but not because the law is contrary to the promises. Rather, it's because the law is fulfilled in Christ and the Spirit in a manner similar to the way a typewriter is fulfilled in the technology of a computer, and I'm profoundly grateful for both. The law served the promise until Christ came. But God has only ever had one plan, one program for our salvation. It's not like he had a plan A, well, obey the law, and now when you can't obey the law, well, I guess I'll have to come up with a plan B. I guess I'll send Jesus or something. No. His plan from the beginning was to send Jesus. He made a promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago and sealed it with a covenant That one of his offspring would bring salvation to all the nations of the earth... The law was given as a guardian to keep the children of Israel in check until the promised one came. But now that Jesus has come, we no longer need the guardian because living in Jesus enables us to live more righteously than the law ever could. In Christ, I obey God's law, not because it's being imposed on me from the outside, but because now in Christ it's written on my heart in such a way that I'm not only empowered to obey God, but I want to. So, Don't let anybody tell you that the Bible says that, well, God has two plans for salvation. There's plan A and plan B. No, there's only ever been plan A. And the beautiful truth is that plan A is still blessing the people of the world to this very day. That we have... The truth of the matter is... That even if there was a plan B, we, none, none of us could do it. None of us could keep the law, so God never put such a thing into effect. He always says about the promise, trust in the one I'm going to send. Trust in that, that promised one from the offspring of Abraham, the eternal son of God who would become a man, that one whose life was of infinite worth, who entered into our experience, became one of us so that he could represent humanity. Because God knew we couldn't, but he could. Jesus was the only one who ever lived who did keep the law perfectly in every detail, never once sinned against the Father. All he ever did in his lifetime was heal the sick and feed the hungry and cast out demons, and raise the dead, calm storms on the sea, teach the most marvelous teaching the world has ever heard. And for all that, they hated him and nailed him to a cross. He went there willingly, not not to pay for any sins that he had. He didn't have any sins to pay for. He went there to pay for your sins and mine, to give that life of infinite worth as the only sufficient payment for the sins of all of us. They laid him in a cold stone tomb. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead, victor over sin and death. And because he's alive again, he's able to offer forgiveness of sin, a new relationship with God, eternal life to all who put their faith and trust in him. That's plan A. It's the only plan he's ever had. Now, maybe you came here today thinking that you needed to get your act together somehow. You need to work harder. You need to do better. You need to come to church more so that maybe God will finally accept you. But I'm telling you, that's a fool's errand. Uh, that's, That's a program for salvation that God never put into effect. His plan for your salvation is for you to admit that you can't do any of that and to put your faith and trust in Jesus instead. It might be that you're here today, and and you gave up long ago trying to live a perfect life. You knew you could never measure up to, to what God wants for you, and so you've despaired that God could ever save you. Well, here's the good news. It's not about you. It's about Jesus and what Jesus did for you. So there's hope for you today, too, if you'll put your faith and trust in Christ as Savior. It's always only been about Jesus. Let's bow in prayer. In a moment, we're going to give thanks for that amazing promise that God made that was fulfilled for us in Christ. But for right now, I'd like to, to address those of you who maybe you came here today thinking that salvation was about you being a good person and trying real hard. And, and now you realize that God never expected that. God knew you couldn't do that. And that's why he sent Jesus. Or maybe you're in that other category of one that despaired that God could ever save you because of all the stuff you've done. And now you hear that there's, there's hope even for you in Christ because, because it's about what Christ did to, to, to pay for the penalty of your sin. It's not about what you can do. God calls you to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your savior from sin and your leader for life. To basically admit that you can't do it, but to give thanks to God for the promise he made, for the promise he fulfilled to all of us in Christ. And and maybe you're at a point where you're ready to say, you know what, I I, I didn't realize that, that that was God's plan for salvation, was to do for me what I couldn't do for myself, and you're ready to put your faith in Christ as your Savior and Lord, to trust him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I would just encourage you in the silence of this moment to pray from your heart a prayer something like, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I know I couldn't be righteous enough to earn your favor. Like everyone else, I have done things and said things and thought things that violate your holy law. I'm a sinner who deserves your wrath. But I thank you that you fulfilled that promise you made long ago to Abraham and you sent Jesus to give his life as a sacrifice, as a payment for my sin, to pay the price that I should have to pay. I thank you that you raised him from the dead so that I can have new life with you. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. I ask you to be my rescuer from sin and my leader for life. I pray that you will come in and make me new and, and enable me by your Holy Spirit to live a life that I'm incapable of living on my own. A life where I produce the fruit of your spirit and please you. If, if that's the desire of your heart this morning, would you just slip your hand up so I can see it? I'd like to be able to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. I see those hands too. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if you raised your hand this morning, there's one thing I'd like to ask you to do before you leave. On your way out to the main parking lot, you'll see a great big green banner that says yes on it. And Paul's going to be standing next to the banner. Just go up to him and say, I said yes. And, and Paul wants to put into your hands before you leave today a little booklet that we've prepared for you called Saying Yes to a Relationship with Jesus. It's it's a, a booklet that kind of explains some of the things we've been talking about today and it it uh, gives you some next steps to follow in following Jesus as your Savior. Father, we are so grateful for the good news of the gospel, for, for that ancient promise fulfilled in Christ and is still changing lives to this day. I thank you for these who've raised their hands here today and pray that That as they leave this place, they would go with the assurance of your word that says, he who believes, she who believes has eternal life. Lord, may they know that in Christ, their sins are forgiven. May they know that Christ now comes to to live in their hearts in such a way as to make them new from the inside out and to, to help them live for you as they've never lived before. Thank you, Lord, for your promise. For the promise fulfilled in Jesus, your son, we thank you today that your promise still stands, that you are faithful to your promise. Oh God, we thank you for all this in Jesus, our Lord. Amen.